0: Before we start, I'd like to pray and uh, pray as Demer often prays, and that is that, um, that any words that are of me will be ignored, and only God's Word will go forth with power. Uh, we claim His promise that His Word will not return to Him void, but will accomplish the purpose for which He sent it out, right? So we're here to open the Word, and we expect God to apply it to our hearts by His Spirit. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to uh, uh, an Old Testament account now, children of Israel um, crossing the Jordan and some, uh, some old um, events that happened, and, but you have lessons for us today, and uh, I pray that you would take your word that is always powerful and active and living and um, that you would do your work in our hearts as only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, before, I, before we begin, I want to put up, let's see. Uh, that should be on the outline. Did I do something wrong there? Can somebody get that to the outline? There we go. All right. Um, I want to put up this outline because the message could be a little bit confusing and hard to follow. So I want you to see this up front, and this is is how it's going to work. We're going to talk about types. And um, when I say the word types, some of you immediately know what I'm talking about. If I said, give me examples, you could, you could rattle off a dozen types out of the Bible. And some of you, when I say the word types, you don't know what I mean. Before we go into Joshua 5, and we look at the circumcision and the Passover they celebrated, we have to look at types and understand types. And understand what God did with types in the Bible, what they are. So here's the outline. We're going to look at the definition of types, and then some examples of types, And then we're going to look at Joshua 3 and Joshua 5, the crossing of the Jordan, the circumcision, and the Passover, and how those are types. And then we're going to make application, Lord willing, to our lives today. But it's just just not possible to extract all of what God wants to teach us out of these events of the lives of the children of Israel unless we understand topology or types. Types are illustrations, pictures, examples, the the New Testament even used the word shadows of things that are to come. Um, As I was, let's see if this works, yes, okay, so as I was reading about types, um, this definition uh, came up on the internet, I think this is a good one, a type is a real exalted happening in history which was divinely ordained by the omniscient God to be a prophetic picture of the good things which he purposed to bring to fruition in Christ Jesus. Now, that might, be, <laughs> that might have muddied the waters, so I'm not sure. But basically, what it's saying is um, there are, are people or events or objects in the Old Testament that God specifically designed to point to his work in Jesus Christ all right? And you can read them uh, just at face value, and and they're great stories, and you can read about how God did miraculous things, but you won't get the full value of what God's trying to teach you unless you understand topology, that God has hidden meanings in these things in the Old Testament. All right, so probably the best way to uh, describe types is to to give examples. And so here's some examples of types. And there are, there are many more, but these are just a few that will give you an idea of what a type is and how it works. All right, so Adam. Adam was the first type of Christ in the Bible. And you might say, well, wait, how is that? How can Adam be a type of Christ? I mean, what, what, what's Adam most known for? Right? He lived like, what, 900 and some years? How long did he live? Anybody remember? But what, what, what's the one thing he's remembered for? His sin. It's sin, right? So you say, well, how, how can that be a type of Christ? Well, the reason that Adam is a type of Christ is because his, by, by one act, he affected all of mankind. And likewise, by one act, Christ affected all of mankind. In um, Romans 5, this, did I have a... No, okay, I don't have a slide for that. All right, in Romans 5... Paul calls Adam a, t- uh, Adam a type of Christ by reasoning like this. In, in Romans five eighteen, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, Adam is a type of Christ in that his single act affected all of mankind, just like Christ's single act of his death on the cross affected all of mankind. All right, next is the ark. The ark is a type of Christ. When God sent the flood on the earth to destroy all of mankind, there was one way to be saved— and that was to enter the ark. And after Noah and his family had entered the ark, God himself shut the door and then brought destruction. And likewise, when God brings his wrath upon the earth, there is one way to be, <clears throat> one way to be saved, and that is to be in Jesus Christ. And there'll come a day when God himself will close the door, and that, that means of entry into Jesus Christ will no longer be possible, and then God will bring about destruction upon all who are not in Christ. Isaac was a type of Christ. Isaac was loved by his father. He carried the wood up the mountain in order to be sacrificed by his father just as Jesus Christ carried the cross up the mountain to be sacrificed by his father. One of the differences, though, is that When Abraham raised his knife to sacrifice his son, God said, stop. When God raised his knife to sacrifice his son, nobody said, stop. And he sacrificed his son for us. Joseph was a type of Christ. He was loved by his father, he was sent to his brothers, he was rejected by them and sold. He, was, he resisted temptation. He was unjustly accused. He was imprisoned. He was released and then given authority over all of the land. And anyone who wanted to be saved had to come to him to be saved, right? An amazing type of Christ, the life of Joseph. The manna in the wilderness was a type of Christ. Just as God sent manna to feed the Israelites in the wilderness, so God sent Jesus Christ to us to be the bread of life. In John 6, we read this, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But now we see that that was a picture of Christ because he goes on to say, Jesus then said to him, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the manna in the wilderness was a type of Christ who is the bread of life. Are you getting the picture? Those of you who haven't heard of types before, are you getting the picture? That all through the Old Testament are scattered these illustrations, people, events, objects that really point to Jesus Christ. Uh, the rock in the wilderness was a type of Christ. When the children of Israel were close to dying of thirst in the wilderness, God said to Moses, strike this rock. And he struck the rock, and out of it came water that sustained the Israelites the entire time they were in the wilderness. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, which Carrie just read a minute ago, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. There's some debate as to whether the actual rock followed them, or just the water that was flowing out of it followed them. But nevertheless, this water miraculously came out of this rock and sustained them the entire time they were in the wilderness. And likewise, that's a picture of Christ who was struck for us and rivers of living water come to us. Jesus told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. One of my favorite types in the Bible was the bronze serpent. We read this morning again in 1 Corinthians 10 how the children of Israel grumbled in the desert and they were bitten by serpents. Do you remember that? Everybody remember that story from from Numbers? Um, They grumbled a lot. And uh, as we read in in, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, don't do like they did. Don't grumble. But they grumbled a lot. They were grumbling about food. They were grumbling about water. They were grumbling about they didn't have meat like they had back in, in Egypt, and they wanted to go back. And so God sent serpents among them to bite them and kill them. And then they cried out to Moses, and Moses said to the Lord, what shall I do? And he says, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, stick in the ground, and anybody who gets bitten by a snake, if they look at that, they won't die. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said to him, when when Nicodemus says, how can I be saved? He said to him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, the serpent is a symbol of sin, isn't it? And what Jesus was saying is, I am, going to, I am going to become sin and be lifted up, and that anyone who looks to me will be saved from death. That is an amazing, amazing type, an amazing picture, an amazing illustration of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. And there are a lot of other types in the Bible. Three more we'll look at as we get into Joshua three and five. There are lots of types in the Bible: illustrations, pictures, shadows um, of things that God purposed to do in Christ in the New Testament. So I hope that helps as we be, as we as we go into Joshua uh, chapter five. I hope that helps people to see that that uh, we we need to understand that there are, there are. Types in the Bible, we need to understand topology, we we need to understand what God is doing before we go into Joshua 5 or or we'll miss most of what God has for us in that chapter. Um, Deemer sent me a commentary by a man named A.W. Pink uh, on the book of Joshua, and in it I found this quote from him. Oops, I went one too far there. There. All right. Listen to this carefully. It is in these opening chapters of Joshua that the Holy Spirit has, in typical form, meaning using types, using illustrations, using pictures, using shadows, revealed the fundamental secrets of success in the Christian warfare and their present enjoyment of the heritage which Christ has procured for them. It is therefore all the more needful for us to proceed slowly and seek to thoroughly assimilate these initial truths if we are to obtain the richest benefit from them. So that's a summary of what I've been trying to say up to this point in the message. That in these first few chapters of of Joshua, there are types, there are illustrations, there are pictures that will help us to see how God wants us to live our Christian life today. And if we understand them, those pictures will help us to live our life today in the promised land that God has promised us, right? So that's what he's saying. Let me read that again. It is in these opening chapters that the Holy Spirit has revealed the fundamental secrets of success in the Christian warfare. If you you didn't understand types, you wouldn't believe that. You wouldn't believe just uh, reading about the children of Israel crossing the Jordan, being circumcised, observing the Passover, you just look back and say, okay, those interesting historical facts, it's kind of neat how God you know, did that with the water, but that would be it. If you didn't understand that there's hidden meanings in there. <sighs> Reveal the fundamental secrets of success in the Christian warfare and their present enjoyment of the heritage which Christ has procured for them. It is therefore all the more needful for us to proceed slowly and seek to thoroughly assimilate these initial truths if we're to obtain the richest benefit from them. Um, Pastor Deemer sent me some notes that he had typed up on, uh, on Joshua chapter 5. And uh, I'm uh, not going to be able to get nearly into all of them. But, so I hope that uh, he's willing to continue here because there's much more to be gleaned out of this, just this, just these opening verses in Joshua 5, much more to be gleaned out of them than we're going to talk about this morning. All right, let's look then at the three, three more types, besides the ones that we mentioned earlier, there are three more types this morning in, let me see, do we read the passage yet? No. All right. There's crossing the Jordan. There is circumcision. And then there's the Passover. That all happened in the first 10 verses of Joshua chapter 5. Sorry. Crossing the Jordan is in chapter 3. Circumcision, the Passover, in chapter 5. Three weeks ago, um, Pastor Demer talked on Joshua chapter 3, the crossing of the Jordan. And his main point was that God. Deliberately, had the children of Israel sit on the banks of the Jordan at flood stage. And by the way, I I pulled up a video of the Jordan at flood stage. If you, if you do that, it's interesting. It's 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 formidable. The Jordan at flood stage. It's it's a rushing, roaring, wide river. And um, Pastor Deemer said that he felt like J- God had them sit there on the banks, looking at that river for three days. In order to teach them that they were powerless to do anything without him. That they needed him to accomplish the things that he asked them to do. And at the end of the message, he talked about the Jordan River being a type of salvation. Just the last couple minutes of that message, he said that the Jordan River is a type of salvation. That it's a type of us following Christ from our old life to our new life. And I'm going to talk about how we can see that in the various aspects of that crossing of the Jordan River. <clears throat> All right, first note that God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, right? A land where there was crops that they didn't plant, houses they didn't build, wells they didn't, didn't dig, that this was going to be a land full of the blessings of God, peace and rest. And this was on, on the other side of the Jordan River. Likewise, God has promised us peace and rest when we come to Him. But just like the Jordan River, stopping the children of Israel from getting to the land that God promised them, there is a river that separates us from the land the life of peace and rest and joy and blessing that God has promised to us. And that river is the wrath of God against our sin. But notice this. What was the instrument that God told Joshua to use that prompted him to stop the waters of the Jordan 20 miles upstream? Does anybody remember? The ark. the ark. The priests had to take the ark, put their feet in the water, and then walk down in there and stand in the bed of the river, right? When the ark of the covenant the, that contained the word of God, the manna that which represented the bread of life, and Aaron's staff that better, which represented the authority that was given to Aaron, all those things represent Jesus Christ. When that ark went down into the bed of the river, God's, by the way, uh, I don't know if it's, (laughs) I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but, but remember the name of the town that God backed the waters all the way up to a town called what? Adam. Right? I don't know. Is that a coincidence? And one commentary I read said that God was demonstrating by that that he was covering sin all the way back to Adam. At any rate, just as the children of Israel had to, uh, just as Joshua had to have the priests put the ark into the river, so Jesus Christ has gone before us into the river of the wrath of God, and He has stopped the wrath of God against us so that if we follow Him in His death and burial and resurrection, we can enter the promised land that God has promised us, the land of peace and rest and the blessing of God. Now, this morning we were talking in Sunday school that this doesn't necessarily mean a life free of physical trouble We can still have sickness, we can still have financial issues, we can still have relationship issues, but it does mean it's a land that is filled with the presence of God, the blessings of God, the peace and the rest of God. And this Jordan is actually a double type because eventually we'll enter a promised land where there is no more trouble. So there's the initial type of salvation where we still have battles to fight, but then there'll be ultimately a fulfillment of a second type where there'll be no more trouble when we enter the promised land that God has finally promised us, heaven. All right. Having established all that, look back at Joshua 3, stated that crossing the Jordan is actually a type, of salvation, a type of moving from the old life of sin and bondage in Egypt into the new life of God's promised rest. Having established that, let's now stand and we'll read the passage of this morning, Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way." When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Please be seated. So we've made the case that the crossing of the Jordan is a type or a picture of salvation. And immediately after crossing the Jordan River God commands the children of Israel to be circumcised. Well we know that that was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham that he'd made to set the Israelites apart but what does that have to do with us? If If the Jordan is a symbol of salvation, then what is being circumcised right after crossing the Jordan or right after being saved, what does that have to do with us? Well, there are a couple of points that I want to make about that act of circumcision. And like I said, um, Pastor Deemer has much more to say on this subject than I'm going to be able to cover this morning. So... I hope he's willing to, to stay here for another week. The first point I want to make is one that Pastor Demer already made about the children of Israel when they were sitting for three days by the banks of the Jordan River watching that river rushing by, and that is to reject any notion of self-reliance. And the reason I say that is this, God could have easily had the children of Israel be circumcised on the other side of the Jordan before they went into enemy territory, right? That militarily, wouldn't that have made a lot more sense? I mean, let's, let's have a, an impassable barrier between us and the enemy while we immobilize our army. But that's not what God did. God said, now that you're across the river and the river is back at flood stage and there's no retreat, now you're, you're, you're just a few miles from the, the main enemy city. Now immobilize your army for days. That just doesn't make sense. Militarily, that would be suicidal. I mean, the, the people in Jericho knew that the Jordan River had dried up for them. I, I would be surprised if they didn't know that Shul and Rizzo did this, right? That they circumcised themselves and the, and, the, and the men were immobilized for three days, four days, five days, who knows how long it was. But I believe that one of the things that God wants us to learn when we first become Christians when we first cross over when we first go into the promised land is to totally depend upon the sovereignty of God to no longer rely on ourselves for anything. You remember John uh, chapter 15 when Jesus was talking about the vine and he said to his disciples, apart from me you can do very few things. Right? So he said Apart from me, you can do nothing. So abide in me, trust in me, rest in me, count on me to fight your battles for you. Pastor Deemer quoted this verse here about crossing the Jordan. Sorry, yeah, before they crossed the Jordan. And he was talking about the children of Israel um, learning to rely on the Lord. He said, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Um, and many of you I, are familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You memorized that. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths or make your paths straight. God's ways are not our ways. In fact, I think it's probably safe to say that God's ways are always counterintuitive they always are going to seem wrong to us. There are so many times when God in the Bible asks us to do things that just don't make sense. And this is one of them. When the children of Israel cross the Jordan River and God says, now that you're in enemy territory and there's no retreat, immobilize your army. So I believe that one of the lessons we can learn from that is that God wants us to abandon all hope of depending upon ourselves and doing things in our own strength God says that he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble I don't know about you but I don't, know, I don't want to be resisted by God That the, the Greek that's behind that is sets himself against that. I don't want to be I don't want to have God set himself against me I want him to be on my side I want to be on his side Reject any notion of self-reliance. You, those of you who are familiar with your Bible stories, you know, you know what happened when the children of Israel came to, the, to Canaan the first time. They sent the 12 spies in, 10 of them came back and said, oh yeah, it's a good land, all right, but you wouldn't believe the cities and the people, there is no way we can do this. Joshua and Caleb alone said, well, it's true. There are big cities and big people, but God is with us, so we can do it. Well, the ten prevailed, and all the people of Israel were grumbling against Moses. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God, through Moses, says, okay, you won't go into the promised land. All of you are going to die here in the desert. And then what they say? Oh, we changed our minds. Uh, we will go in now. And Moses said, too late, don't try it. God has already told you, the door's closed, can't go in now. Well, they tried it anyway. And they got beat. They got beaten badly. So that's that's what happens. We try to do things in our own strength. God gets no glory. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Do things God's way. Now, Isaiah, pretty sure it's 55, says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts above our thoughts. Is it 55? Is that right, Peter? Does anybody remember? Yes? No? Okay. I didn't write that down. In other words, we, we can't understand why God does things the way he does them or why he's going to ask us to do the things he asks us to do. But he wants us to trust him and he wants us to do things his way. There's a, there's a phrase that I've started using with my children when they say things like, Daddy, I just don't know what to do. I just say, do what's right and trust God. Do, what, do what's right and trust God. Don't worry that you think the outcome might not be favorable if you do things God's way. Leave that up to God. Do what's right and trust God. And that's what God was asking of them right here to do what was right, and to trust him. I love the words of the fourth verse of trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's a a children's song, but that has tremendous theological truth in it. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Maybe right now as I'm saying that, you know that God is asking you to do something and you're thinking well if I do this this is going to mean these negative consequences and I'm not willing to take that chance I don't know only God knows if there's such a circumstance in your in your life or you might be having thoughts like that do what's right and trust God All right, the second point that I see here, and it's probably the, the main type that God has in this act of circumcision, that is the, the cutting off of the flesh from our lives, the removal of fleshly desires. Now, God never intended even for the Israelites, for circumcision, just to be a sign of the covenant. And the reason I say that is because even back in Deuteronomy, if you recall, Deuteronomy is uh, the the second giving of the law, right before the second generation is ready to enter the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verse 12, Moses says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And then a few verses later in 16, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So even all the way back then when God was dealing with Israelites, circumcision was never to be an end in itself. God meant them to see that this was a type that this was a picture that he wanted to do a work in their hearts that was symbolized by this outward cutting off of the flesh He said, what I really what I really want to do is cut off what is um, unpleasing to me in your hearts and get rid of that now we run into this we run into this difficult theological problem of of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man when we when we talk about this circumcision because God says right here to the Israelites circumcise your hearts but let's see do i have this next one up here no Okay, the next verse just uh, is Deuteronomy 30, chapter uh, chapter 30, verse 5. And it says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So on the one hand... (coughs) He said to them, you circumcise your own hearts. And then a few chapters later, Moses says, God's going to do it for you. So the Bible has several, many times when when we see that happening. When God asks us to do something, and yet we find out that God himself is actually the one doing it in us. And here's another case where God has promised the Israelites that he will circumcise their hearts. And yet he asked them, to be participants in it. Now, what about us? Then, what does that mean to us? What does it mean if if, if the if the Jordan is the type of salvation we've 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 crossed the Jordan, we we've entered into uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ. We um, and and God is saying uh, to us through Joshua five. All right, circumcise your hearts. Cir- circumcise yourself right after you become Christians. What does that mean to us? Colossians chapter 2. Do I have that one up there? Let's see. No, not yet. Okay. Colossians chapter 2. In him, verses 11 and 12, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here we see that picture of going down into the Jordan River and up on the other side into the land that God has promised. And God himself says he has circumcised our hearts. This is why this had to be done after crossing the Jordan River, not before. Because that cutting off of the flesh, of the heart, happens when we are crucified, buried, and resurrected with Christ. Not before. It can't happen before. It can't happen to an unbeliever. It can't happen to somebody who's on the other side of the Jordan River. That circumcision of the heart, that cutting off of the things that are displeasing to God, that can't happen on the far side of the banks of the Jordan. It has to happen afterwards. So that's why God did that on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, if then we're a child of God, if we've crossed the Jordan, if we've crossed from the old life to the new life, into the life that God has promised, then God has circumcised our hearts and that flesh has been cut away. But, but it still remains to try to influence us, right? We've all seen that. You might have uh, heard the expression, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin, right? Have you heard that before? Um, We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. So we still have a fight. And this is where our responsibility comes in. Our responsibility to cut off that flesh, to cut off the things that are displeasing to God, to cut off the things in our lives that are are worldly, that, are, that our flesh wants to um, indulge itself in. Well, fortunately, um, that's a bad word. By God's providence, He has given us um, an amplification of this cutting off of the flesh in the New Testament in several places. And so we're going to spend... Uh, a bit of time now in the New Testament looking at some ways that God has been very very specific ways that God tells us uh, to cut off the flesh. So Romans chapter 6 is the first one. He who who, who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in other words, sin no longer has dominion over you. Before Christ... Sin was your master. You had to obey it. Now you have a choice. You no longer have to obey sin. And so Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Live as if, live out the reality of the fact that Christ has conquered sin in your life. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin. Is that on there? Yeah. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So Paul says we have been set free from sin, and then he says to not let sin reign. Um, John Piper has two messages on this passage in Romans, really great messages about, uh, about a kingdom, like a, a castle, and there's a, there's a throne, and there's a king on the throne, and then, the, then there's an imposter who's trying to usurp the throne. And we can let that imposter usurp the throne. And we can obey what he has to say, but he's not the real master. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Anyway, I would encourage you, if you uh, have a chance, to listen to those two messages. Likewise, Galatians 5. And here Paul gives us more details of what life looks like under the two different masters. I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what... Let me just remind us why, why we're in these verses right here. Why we're in these verses is that God has given us this picture of being saved and then immediately cutting off the flesh. And in the New Testament, we see um, descriptions of what that looks like, what it looks like to say no to the flesh, to cut it off, to live by the Spirit. We've been given uh, excellent uh, scripture on how to do that. Because what, what I don't want to have happen is we... we we go through all these verses, and then tomorrow morning you wake up and, and nothing's changed. I mean, that, then we've, we've wasted our time. Um, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that Peter and, and Deemer and I and anybody else who preaches, what we, want, what, what we want to see in our lives and what we see in everybody's lives is that tomorrow morning you wake up and the Word of God has taken root in your heart, and there's a change that's been done by the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about this cutting off the flesh, what I'd love to see God do is tomorrow morning wake up. We say, well, somebody says that that area of my life is displeasing to God, and by the power of God, I want that to be cut off. And by his grace and by the power of his spirit, I'm gonna live differently. And I wanna experience God's blessing. I want that to be out of my life. That's what I, that's what I, I pray for and would love to see happen. So anyway, that's why we're here in these verses in, in Romans and in Galatians, because we're looking at ways that God has shown us that we are to live when we say no to the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Um, God is not just telling us to say no to something, right? He's, he, what he's telling us is say, say yes to something better. You see that? Say yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ that was what we're designed for. Say no to the temporary trinkets of the world to say yes to the, the, to the supreme treasure that God designed us for. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh and these are opposed to each other to keep you from the, doing the things you want to do. That's why I said earlier, I believe that, that the things that God asks us to do will always be counterintuitive to our human nature. Because our human nature wants to go that way and the Holy Spirit wants us to go that way. This is what it says. They're always opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And here we get into some uh, practical examples of what it looks like to live by the flesh and live by the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Um, This might not affect most of you. This would be things like affairs and adultery, uh, fornication, Pornography, uh, lustful thoughts. This might not affect all of you, but we go on. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Hmm. Jealousy, fits of anger. Oh, that might be me. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Hmm. Now that's getting a little more close to home, maybe. Uh, of this section, John Piper writes don't forget about the tongue he says remember what James says about the tongue how deadly it is envy, drunkenness orgies, things like these I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but and here's life with that flesh cut off living by the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy peace, what a contrast What a contrast. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So you see it there again. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we no longer live according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit, and our lives are markedly different. What time is it? I think we're going to have to skip the next verses. There are more. Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. Uh, We're debtors not to the flesh. If you live to the flesh, you'll die. Romans 8, we're going to have to... All right. We have to go to the next type, and we just have such a short time. Um, But this next type, the Passover, is undoubtedly the most powerful type of Jesus Christ and the cross in the the entire Bible. Um, You all know the story. The... Children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt and God worked nine plagues to um, try to get Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go and he said to Moses, on this one, he'll let you go. And God said, I'm going to go through the entire land and kill the firstborn in every single house unless unless the blood of the lamb is over the door of your house. And so they took a male lamb, unblemished, perfect, and they killed it. And they took its blood, put it over the door of their houses. When God came through to kill the firstborn in every family and he saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over that house. And he did not kill whoever was inside. What a type of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us. When, John, when John's eyes were first opened to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then um, in 1 Corinthians, let's see, that didn't move. Paul writes, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And in Revelation 5, and when John has been transported into heaven and he sees this tremendous vision around the throne, and you remember, uh, no one is found worthy to open the scroll. And then John says, uh, or the, the angel says to John... Uh, sorry, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is our Passover lamb. No mistake. Absolute mistake. Crystal clear type from the Old Testament that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So God said to the Israelites, immediately after you cross the Jordan River, be circumcised, cut off the flesh, and then celebrate the Passover. Remember your redemption. And likewise to us, say no to the flesh, depend upon me, trust and obey, remember the cross, remember the gospel, live in the light of what I've done for you. What a difference this would make as we go about our lives if we would always live in the memory of what God has done for us through Christ on the cross, Hebrews twelve one and two say this, and it, it it speaks to this very point about remembering the cross. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to our Passover lamb, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's close now um, with some further application. There are two types of people that I want to address in the last couple of minutes here. One is um, the unbeliever, somebody who's on the other side of the Jordan River. Maybe you've seen this morning that God has a better life for you. God desires that you have a life of peace and rest, enjoying his blessings, but you've also seen that there's an impassable gulf between you and him, and that is your sin and the wrath of God against your sin. But you've seen this morning that God through Jesus Christ has made a way. He's stopped his wrath. He's held the waters back so that you can walk through on dry ground. You can walk through to him because of what Christ has done. Don't delay. Don't delay. You you never know when God is going to close the door on that ark and it'll be too late. Don't delay. The other type of person that I want to talk to is the person who's crossed the Jordan, but they have not put off the flesh and they're not remembering the cross and they're not seeing God fight their battles for them and be victorious. They're losing every time they have a battle, they're in defeat, they don't have peace, they don't have rest. Ask yourselves, have you done the things that God asked the children of Israel to do right after they crossed the Jordan River? Have you, with, the, with God's power, put off the flesh, said no to your sinful desires, and looked to the cross and remembered what Jesus has done for you? Have you done those things? I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that and enter into the life of peace and rest and joy and God's blessing that he has promised you if you follow him and obey Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is amazing. Thank You for the things that You have shown us this morning out of Joshua chapter 5, the things You desire of us. And Father, this is my prayer for myself and for anybody who would join me that if there are things in our lives that are displeasing to you, areas of our lives that we are clinging to because we love them too much, and as a result, we are not experiencing the fullness of blessing that you intend to give us, show us those things. Search our hearts, God. Search our hearts and show us those things so that we can come to the cross, ask to be forgiven, and have you cleanse those things from our lives. Father, I pray that your word Um, accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it out, that we don't go from here unchanged, that we rise up from here having your word penetrate our hearts by your Holy Spirit and make us different. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.